from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast, with your host Eric P. Hello Earthlings and welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I'm Eric S. Piotrowski, a.k.a. Duke Scath in the world of video games and Twitter, a.k.a. Scartol in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Today is Wednesday, the 2nd of April, 2014. This is not an April Fool's joke. I'm actually doing a new show. On this show, I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop, music, and killer robots. So buckle up and let's get started. A little bit better than dope is. A brand new kid to show biz. With knowledge, I persevere. But for now, do me a favor. favor. Let me in here. Then we can find a rhyme to fill in space and drop the bass with a taste of light. It's spring break. Yeah, spring break. Like Millhouse on The Simpsons. I'm going to find that and put it up. Spring break. Yeah. Well, when are we going to get rowdy? We're going to get rowdy right now, Millhouse. Whoop, 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 whoop. Like on The Daily Show. Whoop, whoop, whoop. You been kicking it in B-Town? Yeah. Chesapeake, what a shed, cheddar bread. Whoop, whoop. Chairman. <laughs> I didn't know you'd had a car alarm installed. That's interesting. <laughs> Chairman. It's in my tummy, big dummy. <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah, it's been a crazy, it's already been like a hectic break. Not because of this enormous stack of papers I got a grade. I'm not even trying to look at that right now, but because it's been busy. Uh, on Monday, I had a presentation that I gave at the UW-Madison, the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and uh, it went really well. It was about East Timor, and I presented to a class of like 60 students in one of these big lecture halls. It was awesome, and uh, they were very engaged, asked good questions and stuff, and uh, so yeah, that was awesome. And then I was, uh, we, the high school Amnesty International group organized a meeting with uh, Mark Pocan, the representative uh, to the U.S. House here in Madison and or from Madison, I should say. And uh, yeah, that was also great. Like It was an awesome experience for them to get to meet uh, Representative Pocan. And, you know, I've met him many times in the past. So I, I, it's a great thing to see him. And it went very well. Um, and, you know, there's this weird time pressure that goes on with me. I'm sure it's true for other people. I'm not the only one who doesn't have as much free time as he would like. But, you know, there's always like a competing set of instructions in my head when I have a day off. This is true about Saturdays, and it's one of the reasons I haven't put a show out in a very long time. There's part of my head that says, you know, oh, I've got free time. I should make things. Yeah? So yesterday I spent six hours working on a new video project related to the movie Primer. And then there's a part of my brain that says, you know, oh, get stuff done and, and be productive, even if it's stuff you're not interested in doing. So, you know, the Primer video project is a creative thing that I'm interested in doing. This is sort of a creative project above and beyond everything else. And then there's the part of my head that says I should do things that are productive, uh, even if they're not creative projects. So that's creating papers or... Uh, you know, doing any number of other things. And then there's a part of my head that says, oh, you should be relaxing and decompressing and decelerating and doing nothing. And that's the part that wants me to watch movies and read books and just, you know, sit around and, and play games, I suppose. But games are a little more active than those passive forms of entertainment. But, you know, and then there's a part of my brain that's always saying, like, oh, you know, play this video game, play that video game. And, you know, a lot of times what I want to do is just play Skyrim and, and not really think about stuff. So, 
I, I don't know. Like I said, other people probably have this. I, I, I do think that teaching brings certain kinds of unique dilemmas, especially when it comes to time, because we have to sort of fill every minute of every day, and I, I always feel like the clock is ticking when I'm teaching, and, and that carries over into the rest of my life. So this morning, I woke up at 5 a.m. because my brain just clicked on and said, time to start doing stuff, even though I've set aside a few days during spring break to literally do, well, not nothing, but today I wanted to do nothing, and then I thought, it's been so long since I've done a sync as the people are demanding it! And people have been asking for a new syncast, and I'm I'm humbled by that. I'm I'm very gracious uh, and and happy to hear that people want to hear me talk about stuff. And there's been a lot of stuff going on. So without any further ado, let's get right to it. Uh, the this week's take action has to do with um, the new CEO of Shell and Greenpeace is urging people to tell the new CEO of Shell to scrap its plans for Arctic drilling. So go on down to Greenpeace.org and you can uh, sign a little action thing to encourage. Encourage the new CEO of Shell to stop Arctic drilling. All right, let's talk about some of these current events. Like three days after I sent the last uh, syncast, I don't remember when I sent the last one out. But anyway, um, the chemical spill in West Virginia. This is a while ago now, but there, uh, unbelievable stuff going on about this. Um, let me pull up the article here, and I got to tell you, people, I'm sort of worn out in some ways, so I'm I don't I'm not as sort of on point as I always am, or usually am. Yeah, this was January in 2014, so it was right after the last show came out. Um, yeah, the CBS News had an article about frustration mounts over the chemical spill in West Virginia. And for those who don't know, this company called Freedom Industries, that's really what the company is called, Freedom Industries, uh, they, through negligence, allowed 40,000 gallons of methylcyclohexane methanol, say that 10 times fast, uh, into the water, which is a licorice type, it makes a licorice type odor and it makes the water totally toxic. So people couldn't drink the water, they couldn't bathe in the water, they couldn't wash their clothes, they couldn't do anything with the water. Uh, the emergency began Thursday, yada, yada, yada. Um, along the Elk River, according to the D- Department of Environmental Protection officials, Freedom's in- Freedom Industries is exempt from DEP inspections and permitting since it stores chemicals and doesn't produce them. So there was this loophole that went on with this company. Erin Brockovich was on Democracy Now! talking about the West Virginia chemical spill, and she's done a lot of good work, obviously, about you know grassroots, you know, just talking to people. And she said, I think a couple of things that really startled me were photos that people had taken as the water had come on, the color. There was great concern from people whose water had already come on, the smell. They said it was pretty overpowering. Nobody told them about that. They were having to open windows, put up fans just to get the odor out. There was concerns of people who work with homeless groups that had not been getting bottled water, and they were asking questions about they had been bathing in it because no one sent them bottled water. They had burns on their face. There were people who who were showering at that time that still have like some open sores on their heads who did drink the water before the shutdown that still has some open wounds in their throat. So 
again, as always, this is about regulation, and this is about how every time someone starts talking about how regulation is strangling business, and oh, the job creators aren't going to do any job creating because of regulation, this is what we get when we don't have regulation. We have chemical companies that try to keep their n toxic chemical, or the people who store the chemicals, excuse me, they don't make the chemicals, people who store the chemicals, they use Ziploc bags, and then when they spring a leak, they go, oh, well, we, we made a mistake, we're very sorry. And meanwhile, homeless people have freaking bleeding sores on their heads that won't close. It's just unbelievable. Business Week had an interesting article about Meet Freedom Industries. I'm quoting from the article here. Freedom's website lists Dennis P. Farrell as president. That clearly needs sorting out. According to the Charleston Gazette, Farrell was the quote-unquote organizer of Etowah River Terminal, the Freedom facility where the seepage occurred. The local paper also noted that Farrell's girlfriend, Kathy Stover Kennedy, has defended him on her Facebook page. Quote, I'm not asking for anyone's sympathy, Stover Kennedy wrote on January 10th, but a little empathy wouldn't hurt. This is about the people who run the place. She's asking for empathy for them. Just so you know, the boys at the plant made and drank coffee this morning. I showered and brushed my teeth this morning, and I'm just fine. Now, I don't believe that for a minute. I think she, it's, it, it's unbelievable. State records in West Virginia show that a man named Carl L. Kennedy II joined Gary Southern in forming the company years ago. A well-known restaurant owner and man about town in Charleston, according to the Gazette, Kennedy is a twice-convicted felon. The paper reported on Sunday that he pleaded guilty in federal court in West Virginia in 2005 to tax evasion and was sentenced to three years in prison, a penalty that was reduced after he agreed to wear a wire and make controlled cocaine buys in a separate investigation. Kennedy had some background in the cocaine field. In 1987, he pleaded guilty to selling between 10 and 12 ounces of cocaine in connection with a scandal that toppled then-Charleston Mayor Mike Rourke. The Gazette explained, Kennedy apparently no longer works at Freedom Industries. In another twist, Stover Kennedy, Farrell's friend and the Facebook defender of Freedom Industries, is Kennedy's ex-wife, according to Gazette Archives. These are the people who are storing these chemicals. Cocaine addicts and lying women. I showered in it this morning. Ah, my face! National Geographic had a really good article, very long, uh, called A Century of Controversy, Accidents in West Virginia's Chemical Valley. They call it Chemical Valley. This is what people in that area call it because there's so much chemical processing that goes on in this area. Even before last week's chemical spill fouled tap water in nine counties in West Virginia, where more than 200,000 people still cannot use their water after seven long days, it was not unusual to find black water running from kitchen faucets in homes outside Charleston, or to see children with chronic skin rashes or bathtub enamel eaten away, leaving locals to wonder what the same water was doing to their teeth. Uh, the town of Nitro, 14 miles downriver from Charleston, is named for gunpowder manufactured there in 1917 and 1918. A plan to make mustard gas in the town for battlefields in Europe never materialized. But Agent Orange, which was used extensively and controversially in Southeast Asia to defoliate jungles during the Vietnam War, was produced at Nitro's Monsanto Company ding, 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 plant from the 1940s until 1971. And then, in 1984, thousands of villagers in India died after methyl isocyanate, or MIC, a chemical used to make pesticides, plastics, and other products, escaped from the Union Carbide plant in Bhopal. Many of you have probably heard about the Bhopal disaster. Uh, the only place in the U.S. where MIC was manufactured and stockpiled was at Union Carbide's plant in Institute, West Virginia, in the heart of Chemical Valley. So it's like... Every horrible thing we've encountered with regards to chemicals in the last 100 years all came from this part of West Virginia. 
It makes me think if we just, well, we couldn't drop a nuclear bomb there because then the radiation and the chemicals would spread all over the country. But what the hell are y'all doing, West Virginia? Stop it. Now, I don't want to blame West Virginia. Here's the thing. Right. Look, the reason this stuff happens in West Virginia is because people in that area are so desperately poor that they say, we need jobs. And the only people who show up to offer jobs are these hideous cocaine addict lying chemical executives who say, eh, we'll give you a job. You know, here, use your mouth to store these chemicals for a week. And then they're, what do they have? A ch- they don't have a choice. <laughs> Gargling with chemicals. I got to have a job. I don't know what I'm doing. I just need something to live. And so it's not West Virginia that's to blame. It's the, I mean, you know, in a way, it's the regulatory agencies that don't function. It's the government who are completely subservient to these companies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, fracking. There's been some fracking news Exxon CEO sues to keep fracking away from his house. This is unbelievable. Uh, the CEO of Exxon, a guy named, let's see, where's his name? I'm going to find it here for you, let you know. Uh, yeah, I almost have it. Let me see. I've got it. Um, let's see uh, the name. Uh, yes, his name is Rex Tillerson. He... Uh, apparently is more important than the environment, human rights, and ocean life to the CEO of ExxonMobil, Rex Tillerson, is the view from his multi-million dollar property. For that, he demands to be an exception from the consequences of his company's activities and somewhat bizarrely and hypocritically has joined in a lawsuit to block the construction of a water tower associated with fracking near his ranch. So ExxonMobil is fracking all over the world, and especially in the U.S., but... He doesn't want the fracking to take place near his house. And he says it's because he doesn't like the view of having this water tower. Now, that's just one of the complaints that people in areas that have a lot of fracking complain about. But the other is pollution of groundwater and the release of chemicals and all the rest of it. So when it hits home, suddenly this guy doesn't think fracking so wonderful. NIMBY, not in my backyard. Uh, yeah, and then Business Week had a thing about fracking in the UK. The headline is, don't bet on shale just yet. UK activists have helped local landowners stall fracking operations with challenges brought via trespassing laws, local government planning regulations, and other avenues. And property owners in the UK still have little financial incentive to steer clear of a fight. Mineral rights in the UK belong to the crown, not the land's owner. So that's a big difference from the United States. Because one of the things that happens in the U.S. is that people who are poor, and they we see this in the movie Promised Land, and if you haven't seen that, you definitely should. It's a good movie about fracking. It's not amazing. It's not wonderful. It's not great, but it's a good movie. There are problems with it, but whatever. Anyway, uh, so, you know, people who are poor, they don't have a lot of options, especially in areas where agriculture is on the decline because of huge corporate mega farming operations, Monsanto, Archer Daniels Midland, and so... They are approached by these fracking companies who say, look, we'll give you $20,000 or 50000 to mine on your property, and that's a big boost, especially if it comes in one big chunk, and then there's you know a small percentage of the fracking proceeds that might come of the drilling, but... The, the, that's so that's a short-term boost to their personal finances, but then, you know, if for five years the fracking process pollutes their water and makes the land untenable, then what do you have at the end of that? Don't think these companies are going to care once you're, you know, you get open sores on your throat because the chemicals are messing up your body. Anyway, uh, but so in the UK, apparently, uh, mineral rights belong to the crown, so it's not the type of thing where they can go to individuals and say, here, we'll buy you off, buy you off, buy you off. 
Jane Thomas, a a senior campaigner for Friends of the Earth, said Cameron's, uh, David Cameron's plan to increase payments for local governments would not be a game changer for the industry. Quote, they realize that they have a massive and uphill battle and are attempting desperate measures, she told me. In other news, the affluenza defense worked. This guy who, uh, I don't even remember what the whole story was, this kid, this teenager, uh, was involved in a fatal crash, and he said, this is USA Today, are they going to start playing this video automatically? Stop playing videos automatically! Never play videos automatically! Come on! All right. Uh, in a case with growing political ripples, a Texas judge's reaffirmation placing a teen involved in a drunken driving fatal accident on probation is drawing fresh outrage from the victim's families. Ethan Couch, 17, will be on 10 years probation after Texas District Judge Gene Boyd again decided against jail time. He'll also be in a drug and rehab center for an unspecified time. Couch's attorneys used an affluenza defense at his trial last year, saying the then 16-year-old had grown up without it, with a sense of entitlement and developed poor judgment after being coddled by his wealthy parents. So this is... I mean, dude kills someone by driving drunk, and he goes, I grew up too rich. And the judge goes, sounds good. Let's put him on probation. I mean, unbelievable. If you, uh, I just, I'm so astounded by this whole thing. And the fact that judges are like, yeah, go for it. According to police, Couch was going 70 miles an hour in a 40 mile per hour zone when he lost control of his father's pickup and his blood alcohol content was 0.24. The state's legal limit for adults is 0.08. Just unbelievable. And he said, I was, you know, Psychologist G. Dick Miller testified at Couch's trial that the youth was given, quote, freedoms no young person should have, and he felt no rational link between behavior and consequences. Miller has since regretted using the term affluenza. But, I mean, come on. This whole notion that, oh, he... I mean, look. There are ways in which human psychology is dependent upon conditioning at a young age and the degree to which that conditioning does not happen and we don't learn limits and, and all the rest of it has some interplay with the criminal justice system because we are looking often in the criminal justice system to place blame and to hold people accountable for their actions. And as we see with, I mean, you know, if we have people with actual mental disorders, um, you know, people who suffer from, you know, schizophrenia or multiple personality or whatever, like there are real questions about, you know, who's in control of a situation or, or when a person does not have their, you know, actual well-being of their mind, and degree to which, you know, therefore calling them accountable for a crime is specious at best. But that that's a very slippery slope to someone like this who says, well, I don't want to go to jail for what I did, and I'm rich, so I'm going to try to find a way out of it. And it worked, and it's just absolutely stunning. So those of you who aren't rich, sucks to be you! Oh, wait, I'm not rich cancer treatments in France and the USA. Why on earth did I blog this? I have Sometimes I just put a headline in and I'm like, hey, talk about this on the next show. And I have no... Oh, I know what it is. Okay. So this person uh, grew up in the United States and their dad... So the writer is a woman named Anya Schifrin and her dad came down with cancer and they went to France and she writes about the difference in treatment of cancer in France compared to the United States. And it's, as you could expect, dramatically different. And it shows what is possible when we pursue a universal health care system compared to the way people generally get treated in the United States 
under a for-profit healthcare system. So she writes, When my father, the editor and writer Andre Schifrin, was diagnosed with stage 4 pancreatic cancer last spring, my family assumed we would care for him in New York. But my parents always spent part of each year in Paris, where my father was born. And soon he began palliative chemotherapy at Memorial Sloan Kettering. My father announced he wanted to stick to his normal schedule and spend the summer in France. I humored him, though my sister and I didn't want him to go. We felt he should stay in New York City, in the apartment where we grew up. I could visit him daily there, bringing takeout from his favorite Chinese restaurant and helping my mother. I also didn't know what the French healthcare system would be like. I had read it was excellent, but I assumed that that meant there was better access for the poor and stronger primary care, not better cancer specialists. How could a public hospital in Paris possibly improve on Sloan Kettering's cancer treatment? After all, people come from all over the world for treatment at Sloan Kettering. My mother and I don't even speak French. How could we speak to nurses or doctors with my father and help my father? How would we call a taxi or communicate with a pharmacy? Um, my dad got what he wanted. They ended up going to France, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Imagine my surprise when my parents reported from Paris that their chemo visits couldn't be more different. A nurse would come to the house two days before my dad's treatment day to take his blood. And these were things they had to do at the hospital. So he had to be constantly going to the hospital in New York. But in Paris, they came to him. When my dad appeared at the hospital, they were ready for him. The room was a little worn and they were often somewhere else in the next bed. But most important, there was no waiting total time at the Paris hospital each week, 90 minutes. Whereas in uh, New York, there were all these delays, and she details them in the article. I don't want to waste your time or spend the whole time talking. We've got a lot of things to talk about. There were other nice surprises. When my dad needed to see specialists, for example, instead of trekking around the city for appointments, he would stay in one room at Cochin Hospital, Cochin Hospital, a public hospital in the 14th arrondissement where he received his weekly chemo. The specialists would all come to him. So in New York, he had to go to these different specialists, and in this place, in Paris, they came to him. The team approach meant the nutritionist, oncologist, general practitioner, and pharmacist spoke to each other and coordinated his care. As my dad said, quote, it turns out there are solutions for all the things we put up with in New York and accept as normal. So I could read the whole thing to you, but I'll just say that it's a really interesting article. I, I encourage you to check out the this woman's comparisons. And again, as always, I don't want to over-romanticize the notion of a single-path-pair system. I know a lot of my listeners in the UK would have many things to complain about with the healthcare system in the UK. But I think that fundamentally the system of, you know, just as I think public education in the US makes sense because we ought to give education to everybody regardless of whether they can afford it, so true. So too is the same true about healthcare or ought to be in the United States. And this notion about like, oh, every other country with their four, uh, you know, universal healthcare system, they just have horrible, atrocious systems. Well, obviously not in Paris when it comes to cancer treatment. Um, oh, goodness. This is something from the Amazing Grace file. Colorado shooting victim's father forgives shooter. Michael Davis said at a memorial service for his daughter Claire that the killer was blinded by anger and didn't know what he was doing. So this is in regards to the shooting that took place in um, Seattle and... Uh, no, no, sorry, it took place in Colorado, but uh, the article is from Seattle, and apparently it's been taken down, so I need to find another link, but here's what the article said. Quote, My wife and I forgive Carl Pearson for what he did, Davis said. We would ask all of you here and all of you watching to forgive Carl Pearson. He didn't know what he was doing. Some law enforcement officers have vowed not to use Pearson's name and have referred to him publicly as the murderer, but Michael Davis was conciliatory. Quote, the young man that shot Claire had a name. His name was Carl Pearson, Davis said, fighting back tears with his wife Desiree at his side. Davis said Pearson, quote, allowed himself to become filled with anger, rage, and hatred. The fact is that Carl was so blinded by his emotions he didn't know what he was doing. 
Davis said his daughter's last words were to ask Pearson, Oh my gosh, Carl, what are you doing? That was her way of trying to illuminate the emotional darkness that had enveloped Pearson, Davis said. And also from the Amazing Grace file, uh, a woman who survived the Nazis uh, went on Reddit to talk about how she forgave them. Um, her name was, hang on, I will pull up the AMA. Reddit does this thing where they have, it's called AMA, Ask Me Anything, and they have people from all walks of life, sometimes, you know, incredible celebrities, uh, sometimes, uh, you know, Brian Cranston did one, I think, uh, from Breaking Bad, and a number of other people who have been involved in all sorts of uh, public stuff uh, have done AMAs. So anyway, uh, this woman is named Eva Moses Kaur, and, um, yeah, so she wrote this. When I was 10 years old, my family and I were taken to Auschwitz. My twin sister Miriam and I were separated from my mother, father, and two older sisters. We never saw any of them again. We became part of a group of twin children used in medical and genetic experiments under the direction of Nazi doctor Joseph Mengele. I became gravely ill, at which point Mengele told me, too bad, you only have two weeks to live. I proved him wrong. I survived. In 1993, I met a Nazi doctor named Hans Munch. He signed a document testifying to the existence of the gas chambers. I decided to forgive him in my name alone. Then I decided to forgive all the Nazis for what they did to me. It didn't mean I would forget the past or that I was condoning what they did. It meant that I was finally free from the baggage of victimhood. I encourage all victims of trauma and violence to consider the idea of forgiveness, not because the perpetrators deserve it, but because the victims deserve it. So um, she's established an organization called Candles Holocaust Museum and Education Center. Um, she has been doing amazing work trying to spread a message of healing and forgiveness, and I think that's amazing and beautiful. And again, as I've said before about many other situations, if someone who's been through this kind of hell can find it in their heart to forgive the people who did the horrible things to them then how can I not forgive the person in traffic who cuts me off without using his turn signal? You know what I mean? It sheds important light on the way in which each of us lives our lives and the ways in which we approach other people with the default setting, as David Foster Wallace said, of believing that the entire universe is about me, that we're focused only on me and how horribly and personally unfair everything that happens in the world is. When, of course, uh, the best way for us to be in the world is to think about other people and to be compassionate and find mercy and love in our hearts and, uh, yeah, try to make things better for everyone in the world. So I find that absolutely astonishing when someone can do that. The New York Times and The Guardian urge Obama to grant clemency to Edward Snowden on a completely different uh, topic now. Edward Snowden, of course, the guy who... Uh, revealed the way the NSA operates and took a bunch of files and so forth. Um, the editorial boards of the New York Times and The Guardian published editorials on Wednesday urging the Obama administration to treat Edward Snowden as a whistleblower and offer him some form of clemency. The New York Times wrote, quote, Considering the enormous value of the information he has revealed and the abuses he has exposed, Mr. Snowden deserves better than a life of permanent exile, fear, and flight. He may have committed a crime to do so, but he has done his country a great service. It is time for the United States to offer Mr. Snowden a plea bargain or some form of clemency that would allow him to return home, face at least substantially reduced punishment in light of his role as a whistleblower, and have the hope of a life advocating for greater privacy and far stronger oversight of the runaway intelligence community. And I couldn't say it better, so thank you, New York Times editorial board, for saying what I would like to say about how the U.S. government ought to treat Edward Snowden as a whistleblower. He did an important thing. 
And now it's time to talk about some economics. We got some big news about high-frequency trading people. There's been a book out. There was this big debate and, you know, slap fight on CNBC. We'll tell you all about it in just a minute. But first... Goldman Sachs workers, take one for the team. This is from Business Week. A plum job at Goldman Sachs is looking just a bit less rich today. The storied bank said it added 500 positions in the past year while cutting back on the amount it set aside for compensation. A fine-tuned algorithm isn't required to figure out what that means for the average Goldman analyst or M&A banker. On a per-worker basis, the salary discipline equates to a 4% pay cut. Now, here come the numbers. Pay attention, people. Before we do... Think about what you make in a year. Picture the number, all right? Call that up to your mind, all right? Do it before taxes. Think about your gross income. Let's worry about net later. Just think about your gross income, okay? And here comes the fun part. For every $10,000 between your gross income and the numbers I'm about to read, do a shot of Gatorade. Because it's a family podcast. Uh, And so see how hydrated, how many electrolytes you've got. It's got electrolytes. It's what plants crave. Um, Let's see how different your salary is from these Goldman Sachs bankers who are taking a pay cut. It's like on 30 Rock. That's a bonus? Okay. A 4% pay cut from $399,506 per employee in 2012 to $383,374 last year. I don't don't know how they make it. I don't know how they survive. I mean, for God's sake, people. It's not like they're carrying away our garbage or educating our children. These people are doing important work. How can you pay them so little? This is an outrage. The U.S. Department of Justice did not go after banks. This was a piece that appeared on Democracy Now! A new internal report says the Justice Department massively overstated its successes in targeting mortgage fraud while in fact ranking it as a low priority for investigation. So they didn't go after the banks on purpose. The Justice Department's Inspector General says despite playing a central role in the nation's financial crisis, mortgage fraud was deemed either a low priority or not a priority at all. Eh, mortgage fraud. And as I've said on this show, this mortgage fraud is detailed extensively in Charles Ferguson's book, Predator Nation. Read it. And they had a story on NPR about a woman who was made a vice president in one of these banks in order to sign checks all day long. Like she was a desk clerk for you know five years and then they they needed someone to sign a bunch of checks and take the fall if something went wrong and this was massive mortgage fraud she was approving so they were approving so many people they just had to get someone to just sign the checks and they told her to use the name like green or smith or something and they said where did they get that name from and she said they told her it was because it was easy to sign quickly it was a short name and the e's are loops so like that i give her come on not a priority at all. Thank you, Department of Justice. Looking out for us. In one in- Back to the article. In one instance, Attorney General Eric Holder claimed to have filed lawsuits on behalf of homeowner victims for losses totaling more than $1 billion, but the actual amount was 91% less, around $95 million. On Monday, three Democratic lawmakers, Senator Elizabeth Warren, yeah, yeah, Elizabeth Warren, I have never seen Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren's name in the news and not said, That's something awesome that she's doing. 
And now I know there was this kerfuffle about like how much Indian ancestry does she have? You know what? I'm kind of intrigued by that, but that's not like whatever. 99% of the time when she's in the news, it's like because she's standing up for us. And people are talking about she could be a viable alternative to Hillary as our first woman president. I think that would be so awesome. Oh, my God. Elizabeth Warren for president. Anyway, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren and Congress members Elijah Cummings and Maxine Waters asked Holder for a meeting to discuss the lapse. In a letter, the three said, quote, This report calls into question the department's commitment to investigate and prosecute crimes such as predatory lending, loan modification scams, and abusive mortgage servicing practices. In a separate statement, Republican Senator Charles Grassley of Iowa was more critical, saying the Justice Department, quote, wasted time cooking the numbers about the cases it pursued when it should have been prosecuting cases. Amen, Charles Grassley, and I'm not used to agreeing with the Republicans from Iowa. But, um, yeah, this, and again, this shows the systematic nature of how we look at crime. When it's Tyrone on the street with, you know, half a pound of weed or whatever, uh, oh, send him to prison for 30 years, he's a threat to society. And, you know, when... uh, uh, Robert Johnson up in the suites is bilking people out of millions and millions of dollars. We choose not to go after him. And it sucks. It's atrocious and it makes me furious. Speaking of the Obama administration, he went to see the Pope recently. Hey, is this actually like recent news? Yes, it is, excited young person. All right, because I, I like when you actually talk about recent stuff, not chemical spills from three months ago. Yeah, but that chemical spill is still pertinent, wouldn't you agree? I mean, I guess, but, you know, I'm a young person with a very short attention span. Lots of old people have short attention spans, too. I know, but for young people, it's, like, exacerbated by, like, months and years of, like, constantly being distracted. Easy button, microwave oven, instant messaging, like, you know, what I mean? I, I guess I do. Anyway, uh, thank you, excited young person. Uh, the the Pope Obama and a former banker walk into a slum. Does the one percent still win? And that wins the head the award for weirdest headline ever. This was in the Guardian and is written by this guy who used to be an investment banker. And he writes, in the 1990s, I was part of a wave of investment bankers that invaded Argentina. That's his word, invaded Argentina, evangelizing the mantra of unregulated free markets, which had made us millions. Free markets had become the religion of politics and simple economic numbers like gross domestic product, the saints. Our days were spent lecturing very important people, our nights at fancy restaurants with tango dancers to entertain us. During one trip from my five-star hotel, which was in Buenos Aires but looked like Manhattan, my cab got caught in a swarm of banners and megaphones, political protesters from the neighboring slum. And then he describes this moment of epiphany when he had to sort of confront the reality of the people living in these slums and realize that, uh, whoa, maybe not every prescription I have is exactly what the people in these slums are actually calling for. Uh, Later in the article, he says, The Pope knows that the U.S. is moving toward a Latin America-style economy, one wherein the Koch brothers get multiplied many times over. Uh, one wherein the wealthy don't just want more money or opportunity, they want power. The problem with Francis's Argentina writ large is a 1% that wants a political system run with the intent to guarantee that their wealth is never threatened. The problem with that is a wealthy class that wants the working class to be disposable, voiceless, and immobilized. And I'll tell you this, as a teacher in Wisconsin right now, we feel pretty much disposable, voiceless, and immobilized. 
This is the real issue President Obama faces. He needs to stare down, as Pope Francis has, the morally and intellectually corrupt philosophy that unregulated free markets help everyone. It is a philosophy at the heart of the American conservative movement. When needed, conservatives drag out a gaggle of economists to argue their position. These economists, always a thoughtful lot when it comes to human behavior, know the wealthy will benefit far more. Yet the GOP's sham philosophers argue that growth, even if unevenly distributed, will be a net benefit because the winners will win more than the losers lose. We will then all share the winnings, goes this bankrupt economic philosophy, either by way of investments that boost jobs or else from politically forced redistribution by way of taxes. The sharing the winnings part never happens. I want to read that sentence again. The sharing the winnings part never happens. This is not coming from some Marxist left-wing nutcase on the campus of Hippie University. This is from a former investment banker. The sharing the winnings part never happens. It certainly didn't happen prior to the crisis of 2008, and it didn't happen even as the American economy collapsed. The winners kept using their new wealth to further empower themselves. They did this by flooding the political system with money to stack the deck. Rather than invest in job-friendly projects, they moved production to places with the cheapest labor and the fewest regulations. So, again, that's a really incredible article. Uh, I encourage you to read the whole thing. It's written by Chris Arnod. And, uh, yeah, Confessions of a Recovering Fat Cat who saw the same poverty Francis did and knows what a pope can teach a president about income inequality. So thank you, Chris Arnod, for writing that piece in The Guardian. All right, let's talk high-frequency trading. That's the sound of computers trading things very quickly. <clears throat> Michael Lewis is the guy who wrote the book Moneyball, and he's you know written a bunch of other books about economic systems and, and, and finances in, in the world. And so he wrote a book very recently about high-frequency trading. It's called, what's it called? Fast Guys, or uh, I don't remember what the name of the book is. Come on, where's the name of this book? I'm re- looking at a USA Today thing. Yeah, Flash Boys, uh, a new book about high-frequency traders. So this has caused news outlets to take high-frequency trading more seriously. Because apparently when Dark Pools came out, people were like, oh, whatever, we don't care about that. It's a it's a small matter. But now, Michael Lewis comes... Whatever, I shouldn't be hating. Thank you, Michael Lewis, for writing Flash Boys. I will be taking a look at it as soon as I can. But I just bought uh, my spring break... I just bought this 500-page collection of uh, the journalism of Marie Colvin. She's awesome. She was this uh, badass who uh, was in East Timor in 1999, and she refused to leave the uh, embassy. And uh, so as a result, thousands of people who might have been killed were not killed because she and some other people refused to leave. And uh, she died in Syria trying to cover the the uprising there. And uh, she was amazing. Really cool example of, you know, hardcore journalism in action. Like... Alan Fisk, is that his name? Robert Fisk, uh, the, 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 the British journalist, and um, Amy Goodman, of course, Alan Nairn. You know, there are a few journalists who are willing to risk their lives to bring us the truth about what goes on in war zones. And most journalists that we know in the United States, even people that I respect, like, you know, Anderson Cooper is, is a decent journalist, but he doesn't have the same dedication to um, frontline truth as uh, as someone like Marie Colvin. Now that said, you know you don't need to necessarily rank people this way and that. But anyway, uh, so what? My point is that I don't have time for reading because I'm also trying to read this book, 
Paul Davies' Are We Alone, which is about consciousness and, and uh, search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And then I've got 12 Years a Slave, which I've been reading, and this table is out of place, and all sorts of stuff. And I'm supposed to be having fun on my spring break, but I'm busy bringing you the truth. Can you get back to the article? Yes, I can. Easily excited young person. Yeah! Uh, so this is a USA Today editorial, and uh, they say, You know something is wrong in the way stocks are traded when trading firms spend billions on new fiber optic cable routes that shave off a few miles and a few milliseconds from one electronic exchange to another. Now, those of you who listen to this show regularly, this is nothing new to you. You've heard me talk about the cables on the planet and the microwave transmitters up in the sky and all the rest of it and sharks and, and everything. Um, they have dug costly routes through mountains and pumped fortunes into mapping seabeds. This we've talked about before. Here's the new bit. Some have even considered putting drones over the Atlantic that would relay radio signals in straighter lines than could be achieved along cable routes on a contoured ocean bottom. How do you like that idea? When you're flying across the Atlantic Ocean, what are those robots hovering in midair? We are the trading robots. Do not ask us questions. We are trying to make it easier for people, for other robots to trade stocks. Beetle boop. Here is a grilled che- Here is a club sandwich. Uh, ask him if he is not a hobo, then why does he have a bindle? Uh, yeah, the traders' technological arms race is a measure of how aggressively they've gamed the new world of electronic exchanges, yada, yada, yada. It is an elaborate and highly destructive form of cheating. This is the USA Today editorial board here. It harms the people who matter the most, long-term investors who buy into companies with the motive of funding growth and sharing profits. It rewards a select cadre of voters, of traders, who don't care about the companies whose stocks they trade. Often their trading involves a long-scorn practice called front-running. They see what an institution wants to buy, then quickly snap up shares in that company and sell them to the institution at a profit. It's a bit like scalpers who glom the good seats on Ticketmaster. So, here's the thing. The high-frequency trading phenomenon is, to me, a fascinating look at capitalism's logical conclusions and the way in which capitalism inevitably, as Marx said, seeks to exploit every tiny avenue for more, 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 more profit. And in the case of high-frequency trading, we're watching it happen with speed, the question of speed. How, how can we use all of our incredible mind power as human beings to find a faster way to trade stocks? And it has to do with the speed that information can move. And, you know, speed of light would seem to be the asymptote that we haven't quite reached yet, but... It'll be interesting to see the way in which money provides methods of trying to get around even that. So, um, but 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 here's the thing: I'm fascinated by that, but but I don't believe that high frequency trading is the number one problem that Wall Street poses to the rest of the world. Because ultimately, when we talk about high frequency trading and and the okay, so what was the debate on CNBC? Well, here's what it was: the 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 book by Michael Lewis features a uh, a guy who was involved, and they did a piece on 60 Minutes about this. So I'll add a link to that. So and that was, I mean, here's the thing: it's been great to see news outlets like USA Today and 60 Minutes covering this stuff and bringing a lot of public attention to the issue of high-frequency trading because I just find it fascinating, and it is, it is important. It's not irrelevant, of course. 
Um, and so the, the CNBC debate was between somebody who runs the BATS exchange, which is one stock exchange over here, or maybe it's not even stocks. I don't even know what BATS stands for. But they had a, a rocky opening, and there was some question about whether there was a flash crash there. They said it wasn't, but whatever. Anyway, so then there's this other guy who were, and he was, so this guy was featured on 60 Minutes, and I don't remember his name. Let's call him Bob. Um, so Bob had worked for the Royal Bank of uh, Canada, I think, and he realized that high-frequency trading was unfair and that individual investors were being hurt and institutions and pension plans and all the rest of them. And they were losing some money through this high-frequency trading, front-running. And so he said, I'm going to, these people, this is fraud, this is deception, these people are, you know, the game is rigged and uh, I'm going to start my own stock exchange, which he did. And it has, as I think 60 Minutes called it, speed bumps um, to slow down the uh, high-frequency trading. So, yeah, here we go. Uh, outlined by Lewis, uh, another solution is uh, a natural market reaction in large investment firms moving to exchanges that purposely act in ways that thwart high-frequency traders. Um, so the, 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 the argument on CNBC had to do with this you know, guy, Bob, who worked in the uh, Bank of Canada and his, starting his new exchange. He called the system rigged. And then the guy from BATS was like, you, you should be ashamed of yourself calling our system rigged. And, blah, blah, blah. and they, were, they were arguing about the fine points of, you know, look, you still have electronic trading on your system and who's to say it's not as rigged and yada, yada, yada. And so what we have here at the end of the day, and this is really the key point, at the end of the day what we have here is one group of rich investors arguing with another group of rich investors. And some of those investors are running the exchanges. Some of them are investing in the exchanges. Some of them have these, you know, insane robots doing the trading for them. Some of them have humans actually deciding what to buy and sell. And again, as I say, you know, some of those institutions affect real people because, you know, they have pension plans or, you know, whatever. It's a hedge fund and, and individuals buy into that. And it can be mom and pop investors sometimes are actual moms and pops. Most of the time they're not. But whatever. My point is this. The biggest threat from Wall Street isn't actually these robots. I mean, they're a threat. But, but the biggest threat is the way that companies, because of how they're designed, must, by law, constantly lust after power and profit. And that means to hell with worker rights, environmental protection, uh, you know, fair treatment, democracy, and all the rest of the things that we really ought to put a higher premium on. So we end up with, inevitably, we end up with chemical spills in West Virginia. We end up with um, environmental degradation. We end up with fast food workers working for minimum wage, despite the fact they work full-time in a ass-busting job. I worked minimum wage in a fast food place for one summer, and I was done. Because I just couldn't take it. It sucks. That work sucks. And if you look at McDonald's workers and you go, oh, they should get a real job. Shut up. You, dude, you could say that about any job. And the point is that if you go to those places, you obviously appreciate what they're offering. So why shouldn't they get a decent wage for that? It just drives me crazy. Anyway, those are the real issues about how Wall Street affects the rest of the world. So as much as I love looking at the high-frequency trading stuff and talking about how crazy it all is when they start using laser beams or whatever, um, it, that's not really a concern. That's not what really hurts the world. Um, but it is fun to look at, you know, like a car crash or whatever. If, if robots were involved in car crashes and nobody ever got hurt, you know, no humans got hurt, I would still be like, ooh, look at the car crash. Um, so anyway, on a completely different issue, high-frequency traders are upgrading to lasers!
<laughs> this is from Business Insider Australia. Because I, I, I read that news source all the time. No, you don't, man. Hey, what's up again, hot, easily excited young person? I saw you looking at your Google News feeds. That's how you find all these HFT news stories, isn't it? Hey, get out of here. Who asked you? Easily excited young person. Uh, anyway, Business Insider Australia. High-frequency trading. Wait, should I read it in Australian accent? High-frequency trading. Is it a nuisance hell-bent on squeezing as much profit as possible while adding no value to society writ large? Or does it provide markets with unprecedented liquidity, acting as a kind of stabilizer? Uh, either way, now it has lasers. Here's a story from the Wall Street Journal. Scott Patterson on Anova, a company working the edge closer to zero, as in zero seconds between when crucial information becomes available, e.g. the Fed tapers. I have no idea what that means. And when the computer knows to execute a trade. From the journal, in March, a small Chicago communications company plans to switch on an array of laser devices linking the New York Stock Exchange's data center in Mawa, New Jersey. Mawa! <laughs> you like that, Stu? Mawa, New Jersey. With the NASDAQ stock market's data center in another New Jersey community, Cataret. Carteret. The lasers perched atop a high-rise apartment building, uh, high-rise apartment buildings, towers, and office complexes along the 35-mile stretch between the communities are the first phase of a grid intended to link nearly all U.S. stock exchanges this way. Zipping market data and rapid-fire trade. Lasers! <laughs> That's the last line in the article. Lasers! So, yeah, they're using lasers. How about that? All right, we're running out of time here. Let's talk about education. I'll let you know right now, this is going to go over an hour, all right? It's been a long time. It's been a long time. The only reason I know anything about that Boston song is because I played it on Rock Band. That was a great game, Rock Band. I had some good times playing that game. Anyway, um, education, right. <clears throat> I would love to teach, but this is one of a series of letters that have been posted online recently uh, from people who are leaving the teaching profession. And this is nothing new. I mean, we've always had people leave teaching for various reasons, but the difference now is that People, we, we've seen a lot more veterans leave in disgust. There's always been a high turnover rate for teachers. It is an extremely frustrating job. It is a job that brings pressures and tension unlike that you'll find in any other job. And it's not, obviously, it's physically demanding, as like coal mining or whatever, but there are other forms of demands on the mind and, and the soul that come with teaching that don't come with any other job. And I'm sure that's true about every job. You know, whatever job you, dear listener, do, uh, there probably are tensions and pressures that other jobs don't experience. But the point is that the changes we've seen, the transformation of American education that has taken place in the last 20 years, has been so dramatic and so painful that a lot of veterans are leaving and of course we're lucky because they have quite eloquent ways of explaining why they're leaving so this is uh, a letter from someone who's leaving the profession it was about this time that i was leading in with some stuff that we're doing it was about this time that i was called down to the principal's office with a terse email that read only i need to speak with you clueless i took down my grade sheets communication logs lesson plans and sat down as an adult still summoned down to the principal's office i need to talk to you about these students she handed me a list of about 10 students, all of whom had Ds or Fs. 
At the time, I only had about 120 students, so I was relatively on par with a standard bell curve. As she brought up each one, I walked her through my grade sheets that showed not low scores, but a failure to turn in work, a lack of responsibility. I showed her my tutoring logs, my letters to parents, only to be interrogated further. Eventually, the meeting came down to two quotes that I will forever remember as the defining slogans for public education. They are not allowed to fail. And quote number two, if they have D's or F's, there's something that you are not doing for them. What am I not doing for them? I suppose I was not giving them the answers. I was not physically picking up their hands to write for them. I was not following them home each night to make sure they did their work on time. I was not excusing their lack of discipline. I was not going back in time and raising them from birth. But I could do none of these things. Out of the article for a second, I will say that, you know, again, as always, like I'm lucky that I don't face this kind of pressure, but, but it is a heresy everywhere you go in the world of teaching today. It is a heresy. It is blasphemy to say the kid didn't do the work. You're not allowed to even talk about that. And look, I understand why people are opposed to blaming the students, as it's often called, because it's very easy for teachers who aren't doing a very good job to say, well, the kid is being lazy or the kid just didn't do it. And that diverts teachers from paying attention to the way that they teach. But of course, as we all know, at the beginning of The Karate Kid, Mr. Miyagi goes to Danielson and he says the very simple words, I teach, you learn. And the subtext there is that the student has some work to do. And if the teacher doesn't teach or doesn't teach well, we have a problem. But we also have a problem if the student doesn't learn. And it is an active process. And as this person is pointing out, you cannot make kids do that. We see this in Oz, the TV show Oz. You can't make someone learn. You can't make someone want to learn. They have to decide, this is worth my time, and then they have to do the work. Now, I will use myself as an example because I bust my hump making the class interesting and making sure that the lessons are valuable to real life. I start every class with, here's 10 reasons why you need to know how to write well, whether you're planning to go to college or not. And students say all the time how much they appreciate those things. And it carries throughout the semester or in the case of AP English throughout the year. Because I want to make it clear the way that some good teachers did for me, but a lot didn't, that this stuff matters and here's why it matters and here's how you do it and I will help you and we have this thing called scaffolding where you the teacher do it and then you have them practice it together and then you have them do it on their own and yes that's a good process and that's a, a good innovation that we've had in the last few years is that concept of scaffolding and I like it and we use it but the idea that we are going to absolve students from responsibility is a very troubling one and it is one that is shot throughout the most recent waves of reform that have come along. Back to the article. Uh, I was called down to the principal's office many more times before I was broken, before I ended up assigning stupid assignments for large amounts of credit, ones I knew I could get students to do. Even then, I still had students failing. <laughs> there it is. Ding, ding, ding. Purely through their own refusal to put in any sort of effort into anything. And I had lowered the bar so much, it hardly took anything to pass. According to the rubric set forth by the county, if they wrote a single word on their paper, related or not to the assignment, I had to give them a 48%. Yet students chose to do nothing. Why? Because we are forced to pass them. They are not allowed to fail, remember? 
Teachers are held to impossible standards, and students are accountable for hardly any part of their own education and are incapable of failing. I learned quickly that if I graded students accurately on their poor performance, then I have failed, not them. The attention is turned on me, the teacher, who is criticized, evaluated, and penalized for the fleeting wills of adolescents. Could I be part of the solution? Of course. But no one ever asks the teachers, those who are up to their necks in the trenches each day. Or if they do, it is in a patronizing way and our suggestions are readily discarded. Amen, person who wrote this thing. And, um, yeah, it's, you know, it's heartbreaking. This was in the Washington Post, by the way, in their, their blog about education. And it was written by, let me find it. Why don't you have this ready to go? Shut up eagerly excited new young person new person you shouldn't call me a new person i've been on the planet for more than a decade i know anyway um so uh this is from chris l nielsen of monroe north carolina and it was sent to union county public schools um yeah so thank you uh chris l nielsen ah yeah so um teflon 212 also sent me something about uh, what it's like to be a teacher, and this piece is called In What Other Profession? And this was in the Examiner. Uh, I don't know where the Examiner is from. Examiner.com! Examiner! Anyway, it's by David Reber, who is a uh, Topeka K-12 through examiner. I don't, I don't know what that means, but anyway. Um, the article, it, it goes through a list of things that teachers have to do that no other profession does. In what other profession are the licensed professionals considered the least knowledgeable about the job? You seldom, if ever, hear, quote, that guy couldn't possibly know a thing about law enforcement. He's a police officer. Or, she can't be trusted talking about fire safety. She's a firefighter. In what other profession is experience used as a liability rather than an asset? You won't find a contractor advertising, choose me, I've never done this before. And your doctor wouldn't recommend a surgeon on the basis of her, quote, having very little experience with the procedure. In what other profession is the desire for competitive salary viewed as proof of callous indifference towards the job? You won't hear many say, that lawyer charges a lot of money. She obviously doesn't care about her clients. Or, that coach earns millions. He clearly doesn't care about the team. So, uh, yeah, amen. And we've even in the school where I teach, like we've had this new compensation package, quote-unquote compensation. I'm making the Dr. Evil air quotes now. <coughs> compensation where we don't get a cost of living increase each year. Instead, we are required to jump through a lot of different hoops if we want to have our salaries keep up with inflation. Nonsense. And our final education article comes to us from the Duchess. Thank you, Duchess. Milwaukee Voucher School collects $200,000 and closes. A small private school participating in the Milwaukee Parental Choice Program abruptly closed in the middle of December, but not before collecting more than $200,000 from taxpayers this academic year to educate students who now attend other schools, state officials confirmed. Life Skills Academy, a K-8 school that had dwindled to 66 students, appears to have closed around December 12th, according to a letter sent to the school from the Department of Public Instruction. No students attending life skills were proficient in reading or math in 2012-13, except for a single fourth grade student, according to the most recent state achievement test score results. And this comes back to that question about, you know, do charter schools do better than public schools? And the answer is generally no. In some cases, they do perform better uh, in certain oral dist uh, excuse me, urban districts, uh, areas where there's high poverty and so forth. And the reasons for that deserve our attention, but generally speaking, charters do not do better than regular public schools. So 
they're often presented as these saviors of education, and they're just not. So, whatever. All right, let's talk about some killer robots. Robotic beings rule the world. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. They look like they're dead. It had to be done. I'll just confirm that they're dead. So that we can have fun. Affirmative. I poked one. It was dead. Robots! Robots and more robots! I ain't got no robot stories. I don't know. What's going on with robots? There's nothing on my Google robot feed. And I haven't been saving any robot stories, so I don't know what to tell you about the robots, people. They're coming to get you. Watch out for the robots. They're going to have drones over the Atlantic soon that are doing the high-frequency trade. We are sending messages. Beetle boop. All right, let's just talk about hip-hop. Uh, one, two, one, two. Uh. I haven't really found any new hip-hop acts lately. I've been listening to Farrah Burns over and over again, and uh, Mantra is the other one. I played his loud mouth, I think, once upon a time for all of you. I know I played it on the Veteran Gamers. Anyway, uh, this week I will tell this week. God, i got to get out of that habit. You haven't put a podcast out in months. You should say this semi-year. That doesn't even make sense, eagerly excited young person. Anyway, um, I want to tell you about Mars. Because Mars is a group that only ever put out one song. I think they made two. I mean, there was a backside to the single for this. But the only song anybody's ever heard of from Mars is Pump Up the Volume, which is such a beautiful song. I mean, it's just glorious. And I'm going to have to keep saying great things about it because YouTube is putting an ad in front of everything now. It doesn't matter if you want to see a five-second Simpsons clip. YouTube's going to stick an ad in front of it. And the ad will be 15 seconds long. It's so ludicrous. They're putting out ads that are longer than the clips. Anyway, Mars, pump up the volume. Now, one of the reasons why this song is so awesome is because it features a lot of samples from hip-hop. This is why it really fits into the hip-hop category. Now, hopefully you're familiar with this song already. If you're not, you've got to check it out. So the, the, the samples in that bit come from, the, the main one, the title comes from Rakim. Uh, as soon as the bass hits, pump up the volume. And the Brothers and Sisters bit comes from, well, I know Public Enemy sampled it. I don't know, I don't think they originated it. They probably sampled someone else, but um, most of us know it from the Public Enemy song. Brothers and Sisters, I don't know what this world is coming to. I don't know which PE song that is. But anyway, um... And then, uh, You're Gonna Get Yours is also, that is Public Enemy. That's from their song, You're Gonna Get Yours. And uh, so this song came out in the 80s, and it served as a soundtrack for those of us especially who lived in the world between electronic music and hip-hop. Because some of us knew we couldn't actually rap. And so what we said was, okay, let's make music that pays tribute to hip-hop without having to actually be rap. Pump up the volume, pump up 
And Mars was not trying to appropriate or, you know, pretend like they were uh, from the, the streets or whatever. They just said, look, we love this sound. We want to do something with it. And we're going we're gonna to put our own spin on it. And they were very effective. Love this song. And as it says, pump up the volume. Now, I remember at one point Beavis and Butthead uh, watched Pump Up the Volume and talked about it. So I'm going to see if I can find that real Yes! I love you, YouTube! You're my hero, YouTube. All right, here's the Beavis and Butthead watching the video for Pump Up the Volume. Check this out. Yeah. <laughs> Now I should point out that the video has a lot of footage of like astronauts in training and satellites flying around, so it does look very cool. And that's probably what Beavis and Butthead are responding to in the initial phases of this video. Is this PBS? Oh yeah. <laughs> is that Uranus? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uranus is cool. Thanks. <laughs> that guy in the chair seems pretty cool. Yeah, seems like a pretty good guy. <laughs> hey, Beavis. Yeah. <laughs> 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 what reminded me of it was the part where the woman's singing. <laughs> And I remembered Beavis and Butthead had done their own rendition of that. So there you go. You're welcome, people. If you've never heard Pump Up the Volume before, you got to go find it and listen to the whole thing at a very loud volume. But it's running late, so let's get to the quote of the week. Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Stop repenting because the ending is near. But don't panic. You can't function if you live in a fear. Pay attention. you got to listen to hear. Um, in 1991, the Supreme Court of the United States Chief Justice Warren Burger, who was no longer Chief Justice at that time, um, I believe Rehnquist had taken over by then. So, uh, but he said, quote, 
The Second Amendment has been the subject of one of the greatest pieces of fraud, I repeat, fraud, on the American public by special interest groups I have ever seen in my lifetime. End quote. Damn! Take that, the NRA! All right, folks, that's it. I'm going back to enjoying my spring break. Show notes and links to everything in this podcast are on my blog, Didactic Synapse, which is at fbesp.org slash synapse. I said at one point I was going to blog every day. Whew, that didn't last long either. I got to stop with these New Year's resolutions. They never last. Anyway, uh, my website is The Floating Brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, fbesp.org, with links to music and fiction I've written in multimedia. You can still buy my book. And, uh, yeah, lots of other stuff. Shout-outs this week to you, the listener, for uh, listening and tuning in, even though it looked from all intents and purposes like I might never come back to the podcasting world. And thanks especially to everybody who sent me uh, emails or Twitters or Facebook stuff or or uh, people who talked about how they wanted another Sincast. Uh, Jason Gallagher, I believe, said at one point he was really waiting for a new one. Phil Olson has been a great support er, a supporter, uh, and he does a great job at Virtual Pizza, so if you don't listen to that, you're missing out! Um, I'll also shout out Teflon212 for sending me that article, and the Duchess for sending me the article she sent. And uh, I'll shout out Maria Bamford, because uh, she was in Madison last night, and we went to see her, and it was a great show. And she had two opening acts, whom I, I don't remember their names, but they were funny too. So if you happen to encounter the names of Maria Bamford's opening comedians, they were both good, one's in Madison and one's from Chicago. And, uh, yeah, thanks to everybody who listens and supports, and uh, a special thanks to the people who did the... Um, I guess it was John Mouse and Bongo the Sane and other folks from that group who uh, did the show at, the video at Rezd. And uh, special thanks to the disabled parking sign. I can't wait to meet that guy. He seems like a really cool dude. I don't have a lot of time to edit this thing, so I apologize if there's stuff that I forgot to cut out or sounds I didn't edit. I'm a busy man. I don't have time to be editing all this stuff. Hey, listen, I don't have time to play with the phone here. I got a lot of stuff I got to get done. Thanks for listening, people. Please get in touch with feedback or questions. You can email me at esp at fbesp.org, or you can tweet me at dukescaf, D-U-K-E-S-K-A-T-H. I will stop talking now. Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful. And now I can eat this juicy apple I've been holding off on for the entire hour. Mmm. That's a good apple.